Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of A Fortnight in Film. I'm your host, Jason. I'm your co-host, Christian. Thanks for tuning in. 27 episodes. My God. I know. Nearly nearly at the big 30. Yeah. Creeping slowly towards it. (laughs) I think this is only the second time since we've moved to discussing three films on a single episode that I've actually really liked all three films. Oh, yeah? Good. I'm I'm glad because my picks have not been big hits lately <laughs> like i think the only other time i've i've really liked all three films was the first time we started discussing three films which was george and i episode uh 15 uh, we discussed boyhood which was my pick which i absolutely adore george did not like i still hold that against you george um <laughs> uh big heat which george pick which was fantastic and then your pick of a per- of perfect blue which i love i i actually recently uh re-watched perfect blue like uh, last weekend, I introduced my my younger my youngest brother came to visit me. He mentioned that he'd never like he doesn't like anime, and I'm like, oh, I hate anime too, except for a few notable projects and and perfect. It was between Perfect Blue and Ghost in the Shell, like the original animated film Ghost in the Shell, um, which is going to have to be one of my next big picks. But if I'm going to recommend that in the future, I'm going to recommend Ghost in the Shell and the second one because they're both astonishing films and they pair very nicely together. We might have to do like a double feature episode or something. If we ever do that, that that's going to be my pick. But uh, yeah, I had him watch Perfect Blue and uh, he was at the end. He was like, well, that was a fucking ride. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I told you. That's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that we, uh, we, we will be having a very positive episode. Yeah, definitely. This episode. Heads up. The films we're about to discuss may contain spoilers. For a list of the movies we cover this week, check out the description. So let's kick it off with uh, my pick. So this is a very famous film, especially if you're into film, and that is Apocalypse Now, uh, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So it came out in 1979. There's actually like three different versions out there. So there's the original 1979 version. Then there's... The one I watch, which is um, Apocalypse Now Redux, um, which came out in 2001 uh, and restores 49 minutes uh, of scenes that were cut from the original film. And then there's uh, Apocalypse Now Final Cut, um, which came out in 2019, which uh, Coppola has said is his preferred version. So he cut 20 minutes off of what he added to Redux. <laughs> Make up your mind, man. <laughs> so there's three different versions so so christian watched the original i watched the redux the redux isn't all that different i mean like i said it has 50 minutes of extra footage but the plot is basically the same and the stuff that's added in there is not of all that great significance really um and i've sort i sort of wished i did just watch the original now but um i had the redux version so that's what happened stars marlon brando although he's actually not in it until the end and has sort of a small role uh, the main person is really martin sheen small but big true um, and also has Robert Duvall, a very young Lawrence Fishburne, uh, who was actually 14 when they started filming. Wait, Lawrence, I'm sorry, Lawrence Fishburne was in this? Who was he? Yeah, he he was um, 
Mr. Clean. That was Lawrence Fishburne? It was a very young Lawrence Fishburne. The guy on the boat? Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. He he lied about his age to get the role. He was only 14 when filming started. But by the time, because it took so long to film, he was 18 when it was released. So that's, yeah, very young Lawrence Fishburne. Um, Frederick Forrest, Albert Hall, Sam Bottoms. Dennis Hopper makes a brief a notable appearance. Um, so quite a few big names, as you'd expect from a popular film. Lawrence Fishburne. My God, I didn't realize that. I can't believe it was him. I'm still kind of getting over that. I, I clearly didn't do my research before the episode. Um, <laughs> my God, wow. That's, right. that's, that's, that's my job, so. <laughs> yeah, damn. I'll try and give a somewhat brief plot synopsis because it is a long film. I mean, the, uh, the original comes in about 150 minutes. The Redux version, which I watched, comes in at 202 minutes. So... It's a very long film, so I'm not going to go into super specific detail. But so Martin Sheen plays as someone called uh, Captain Willard, and it's just it's set during the Vietnam War. He's brought to these headquarters, uh, where actually, funnily enough, Harrison Ford also appears very briefly, and his character's name is Colonel G. Lucas. It's obviously a nod to um to the Star Wars creator who actually was slated to direct this originally. I read. Um, but then he he put well, he pulled out to do, to do Star Wars. But um, originally he was George Lucas was supposed to direct this film, and I read I don't know how true it is, but I read he was going to try to do it as like a comedy, which I don't know how that would have worked because <laughs> um, I cannot imagine this as a comedy. It's a weird alternate reality to even consider. Okay, yeah. So it says while working on while working as an assistant for Francis Ford Coppola in 1967. Uh, filmmaker John Milius was encouraged by his friends George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to write a Vietnam War film. They're pretty good friends to have. And it goes on to say that Milius had no desire to direct the film himself and felt that Lucas was the right person for the job. Uh, Lucas worked with Milius for four years developing the film uh, while working on other films, including his script for Star Wars. And it says he approached Apocalypse Now as a black comedy, um, but he pulled out because um, to do Star Wars, and then Coppola got the job. I'm just picturing MASH when I think of that concept. <laughs> Although there was a, that was Korean War, I think, though, wasn't it? It was a yes. MASH in the Korean yeah, War. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So, but, but, you know, I could picture that type of comedy working similarly. Yeah, I just, I can't. I mean, given what this film is, I cannot picture it as a comedy at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in its current state. <laughs> Joke, you can add jokes. They're not going to work anywhere. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was sort of a bit of an aside to mention that, yes, Harrison Ford was briefly in this film. Martin Sheen, who plays Captain Willard, is, is, is summoned to his headquarters and told that he has to go and assassinate someone called uh, Colonel Walter E. Kurtz, who was in the Special Forces and he's sort of gone insane and is waging this, you know, he's got this band of followers and he's waging this sort of guerrilla war against against people in Cambodia. And Willard has said, go and assassinate him for us they get on a river patrol boat and there's a few people on that boat so there's chief phillips um who's played by albert hall there's lance who is played by uh sam bottoms uh there's chef who's played by frederick forrest and then there's mr clean who's played by lawrence fishburne so it sort of follows them as they go up the river to Cambodia trying to find Kurtz. They lose a few people along the way, so Mr. Clean gets killed by um, people in the bushes, you know, firing at them. Chief gets killed by a spear thrown from the bushes. 
Chef gets killed by by Kurt once once they uh, once they get to him because um, Willard says initially, you know, if I'm not back by this time, call in an airstrike and, and kill them all. Um, so uh, you know, eventually they they find Kurt. Um, Willard meets him, and he deems that he is in fact insane. He basically carries out his his orders. He he kills Kurt. Him and Lance leave the uh, leave the site and sail off into the sunset. Um, now it's a very high level synopsis. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between, but I'm not gonna. I mean, we can get into the specific detail when we discuss it. There's yeah, there's so much to get into. Surprised, I like this film as much as I did. I mean, it's been on my watch list to see forever because everybody always talks about it, and I've known it. You know, I, I love Vietnam War films, and I've you know, I lo- I, Full Metal Jacket. I've always held up there as like. One of my favorite films ever. I think *The Deer Hunter* is great. Um, you know, so I, I've I've always loved reading about the Vietnam War, watching stuff about the Vietnam War. I went into this knowing it was it was Coppola, you know, *The Godfather*, it's a great filmmaker. But I also knew it was a strange film in some sense, um, and so I was unsure, like, hmm, am I going to like this? And I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did. So I gave it five stars. Realistically, as I mentioned to you and George before, it's probably more like a four and a half for me. But I just feel like for the cinematic experience that it was and what it meant to film, like what it inspired to come after it, I just feel like, yeah, I'll give it five stars. That's fair. What did you think? I have seen this movie before, but like Taxi Driver, I had not seen it in a very long time, like so long that this may well, uh, this, this may as well just be a fresh experience. I'm pretty blown away by it. Um, it's much better than I remember. I, I never liked classic rock and i think back in the day that's what kind of turned me off to a lot of it because it's pretty it's pretty present um doesn't bother me so much anymore it it gives it that kind of trippy sort of disorienting atmosphere but i mean this it felt like the main character who is trying is you know he's he's going on kind of this journey and it's like this journey into hell i mean this the the like dante's inferno kind of journey into hell um, each each like set piece where they get off the boat and stop somewhere feels like another circle. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it. You really and you see a little bit of everything, but but I, I kept watching it, and I I literally finished the movie about two minutes before we started recording. You know, I was thinking about it, and so the reason I say this is because I didn't get the chance to like look up other reviews or opinions or analyses on it, and I I'm sure I'm not the first person to you know connect the dots on the next thing I'm gonna say, and and this is probably something that was intentional, and I'm just out of the loop. I mean, it reminded me of Heart of Darkness. You ever read that? I think I was assigned to read it at university, and I just couldn't be bothered, so I didn't. But um, but no, well, it, it, it's funny you mention that because it is. It's very very good. Well, it, it's it's a very writing. loose adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Is it w- was it supposed to be? Because yes. it it seems yes. so very much like Heart of Darkness. And yes, it, yeah, it yeah, it was. I mean, but again, it it was Coppola changed it significantly from. I mean, I mean, you would know because you've read it. He changed it significantly, but yeah, it, it's loosely based on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this looks like it is Heart of Darkness, just in Vietnam. They're even on a on a boat, like <laughs> heading upstream, like into the Heart of Darkness. It played on this like nightmarish frequency the whole time, and you know, it felt like that even without his dialogue, like his narrating, his monologuing. It started off feeling kind of like overly melodramatic, but I kind of settled into what they were going for more and more. Pretty much as soon as he gets on the boat, I, I start like it starts sinking in and kind of working for me. 
the set pieces are gorgeous, first of all. And and it's it's gorgeous even though what's happening is like fucking horrifying. It's it's disturbing, it's visceral, it is extremely cinematic. The performances were great. I you know who I especially liked was the uh, cavalry commander, the air cav guy, Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall was fucking fantastic in this movie. And so was uh, Marlon Brando, even though he had a small part. And when he when he got there, and you know, just the color gradient, that that kind of like yellowish, orangish, I mean it it felt like hell to me. What I, lo- I love that it was able to kind of communicate that with atmosphere instead of like you needing to be told that this is what they were going for. Because, you know, I feel I feel like in a lesser movie, they would just have this character be like, I was descending into hell. Blah, blah, and they would just kind of find different ways to say that throughout the movie with his internal monologuing. But here, like you feel it. it you just have this very uncomfortable atmosphere. Do you remember where they where the he there's the lights everywhere and they're being attacked and he gets off the boat and that one guy's like you're in the asshole of the world and then you know there's like the creepy music you know blaring that's kind of dying out and they're firing in all directions and and uh, and that one guy you know shoots that that grenade launcher oh yeah and uh, he's like I I don't know that that was like a really disorienting like somehow that was the most disturbing part of the movie for me because it just felt fucked up it just felt it just felt like wrong like some universal constant was just tweaked and and it just felt unnatural you know just something was just unnatural about that i'm sure he it, to some if to extent he was going for some kind of like disorienting effect for what it's like to be in war and if that's what he was going for i feel like that was extremely extremely extraordinarily well communicated even even when he is is nominally in control of the situation or he's like uh he's he has a lot of fire support like the air cavalry scenes it just feels like he's being swept up into this horrifying mess even when you know the people who are perpetrating it that are on his side are like cheerful and and it still feels like a nightmare even though you're traveling with quote on heavy quote unquote the good guys, it just it, yeah it pretty much in every single moment of the movie, you felt like like uh just like you were in danger. Like I, I felt like I was on edge, like I was in some kind of danger like the whole time. And so you know I could talk about the musical score, and even though it's not my kind of music, it, it really really helped the movie and the experience. I could talk about the cinematography, the filmmaking, the incredible like practical effects, all the extras, everything. Um, but what really got to me was it just it just kind of got under my skin and made me just feel I, I had like a mild fight or flight like the whole time I'm watching this movie. You know what I mean? I don't know if I want to give it a five star. It's a, definitely a four and a half star. I'm leaning towards five. I'm kind of on the fence. I got to think about it. Uh, and then I got to have to kind of consider if the music is is the reason it's not a half star, which which personal preference. I don't know how much that should factor into it, but. I definitely think it's a masterpiece. And if it is, as you said, and I fully believe this, that this must be the case, that it is supposed to be um, sort of an adaptation of, of Heart of Darkness, fucking nailed it. I feel like they could make a more literal adaptation of Heart of Darkness today and not, and you wouldn't get the same feeling, you know, this, this crawling under your skin feeling for that, the entire experience. I, I feel like it was very unique the way that he had that kind of reach out through the screen and grab you and, and just, just get under you a little bit. So I, I think it worked amazingly. 
as as a heart of darkness um, sort of reimagining. Uh, and I think it worked amazingly as a, you know, like a, a war film, a Vietnam war film. And like I said, even, even, and I don't think it's a pro war film, but I don't think it had to lean into like Marlon Brando's, you know, ravings to get that message across. Because like I said, even when you're with the air cavalry scenes, I know it's a war zone, but it felt like it's just this free fire wild west most of the time. And it just felt wrong to just be in a bunch of helicopters and be able to just, you know, fly over and, and, drop rockets and bullets on some village all of a sudden, even if there's enemies there, like, you know, you see women and kids and school children running. And then you see, you see the, like, um, you know, this, this, uh, almost this like disturbing, like bastardized celebration of like American war machine. And it's, it's, it's like, uh, it looks like a pro, like they're like, they're hamming it up. They're making it more cinematic. They're making it look kind of heroic, but it, it has this just f- sort of, unnatural feel to it where it, instead of it making you get that that frisson that kind of adrenaline rush when you're there you instead feel kind of like not comfortable with what's going on I, it's hard to describe well yeah it's it just on that point it's like um that scene out of full metal jacket right with a chopper gun and then you're screaming get some get some and uh and uh, uh joker says to him i forget the actual line but he says something like Oh, do you kill women and children? And he says, "Yeah," and and, and he says, "What? Well, how?" He says, "Oh, you just got to strafe them some more. Ain't war hell, you know? Like it, it's that same thing. Like you're in this chopper gun and you're seeing them just gun people down, and the the thing, oh, you're with the good guys, you know? Quote, yeah, it's a similar thing. And I mean, obviously, Final Jacket came out after Apocalypse Now, so Weber Kubrick was, you know, inspired by Coppola. It's like this casualness of violence, like how easy it it comes to that and not not that it's i'm not i'm not and nothing i say reflects actual military veterans let's just get that out of the way because i have no idea i wasn't there you know <laughs> um but just from a cinematic experience i don't know it, uh, it feels off intentionally in a, in a very effective way i mean i can't have much more to what you say because you basically said all of what i said far better than i could have <laughs> um, no i didn't i didn't feel like i did but i appreciate the <laughs> but i mean like yeah, it was really it it was an experience, you know, visually, orally, and I don't know if maybe the Redux, maybe this is where the Redux version is is different. I don't know, you know, because I don't really remember the soundtrack or if we even had one in the Redux version. That must have been a big change then, because there the parts of it felt like it was going to go into a music video, and then and then it, you know, and then the scene transitions to something. Yeah, maybe I just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't really remember music. I, it's pretty overt when they use it. I mean, the the the, the Wagner, Wagner scene is, I mean, but that that's that's worked into it, and that's one of the the more quotable, not quotable, but more mentioned examples, I think. Um, but there were a lot of moments, even when he's doing that like um, shadow boxing thing in his hotel room in the flop, you know, in the beginning, and they're they're playing this kind of trippy seventies music, you know. Yeah, I think like CCR or something. I don't know if any CCR was actually in there, but that that kind of era of music. But yeah, just, you know, the colors, the lighting, the effects, like you mentioned. I mean, especially when we finally meet Kurtz, you know, and we don't even see his face for like five minutes because it's just shadow and you hear him speak, but you can't even see him. I literally, like the first time I saw some of his face, I was like, is that Marlon fucking Brando? Is yeah. that Marlon <laughs> fucking Brando? And then I saw his face. I'm like, oh, it's Marlon fucking Brando. 
Oh my god. <laughs> I, I didn't look up anything to going into this again. And and it's been so long I don't remember. And I, I, I think when I first saw this, I didn't know who Marlon Brando was, probably I was very young. Holy shit, was he the right person to have at playing Kurtz? I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just it just felt like a nightmare. Yeah. Well it it did, you know, it's you know uh, you know, I've read things that Mia mentioned what you said that it was like going into hell and like you know when when they get when they get to Kurtz's compound or if you want to call it and all the boats like part to let them through it's like the opening of you know the gates of hell it felt like a horror movie most of the time honestly well it well it is in a sense it's like a psychological horror because you're seeing Willard you know descend from I mean someone who's already you know somewhat damaged from being in the Vietnam or mentally you know PTSD and the rest of it and then it just gets worse and worse and worse as he goes, you know, further up the river, you know, in this sort of obsessive search for Kurt. I mean, obviously it's his job as such. He's been sent after him, but, you know, it, it sort of takes over him. Like, you know, I need to, I need to meet this Kurt. You know, like he, I think he, one of the lines he says in the film is like, I need to confront him. Yeah, sometimes he felt like a Greek hero, like going into the underworld, accomplishing a task and, and then trying to get back over the river sticks, you know? Yeah, like it was just, it was, it was an experience. That's the best word I can use for it. Just, you know, everything in it said so nightmarish, so, like you said, disorienting. Yeah, and it does it with, with atmosphere and not just with visuals. Like almost, almost as if, you know, the low hanging fruit would just be to show a bunch of war crimes and dead bodies. But he did. He doesn't do Coppola. Doesn't do that. I mean, there is some of that, but he doesn't lean into that. He creates the. He creates an atmosphere you want to fucking run away from. That's that's what makes it so effective as a psychological psychological horror to me. Is he doesn't need to show you shocking images. And he, there are shocking images, but but he doesn't need to do that for the whole runtime runtime to get the effect that he got. So in in a way, he kind of created this psychological horror with an economy of actual visualized horror it's, it's it was very atmospheric and that's what that's what really grabbed me and i think part of that too is just the tension of it because the whole time you were waiting to see kurtz right you were you know you were on this journey with them to see kurtz and so when you finally got there at the end it felt such a big moment because you're like this is the person we'd be waiting to see for you know, the last two hours um, or three hours in in the case of Redux. Um, Not only that, but like, you know, the this is something I'm kind of piecing together as I talk about it. And I, I, I'm sure that this may have been intentional also. But, the, you know, he keeps meeting different groups of American military, like as he goes. And it, I felt like ever and I have to rewatch it again now, but in my mind, the way I'm remembering it, every time he meets a new group, they're more and more like unwound you know they're more and more unsettled they're less and less professional and it's almost like the further in they are the more affected they are by it and it, and he's kind of like it feels like he's going down a drain and he's passing other people that are at different stages of going down that same drain until he gets to kurtz who is in the drain you know mm-hmm. yeah and and you know he's it's like he's he's in danger of becoming what Kurtz is as he moves down that same path and then makes this conscious decision to walk away from it after he had the, basically the, the possible, the, the, the opportunity to literally take his place is what it looked like. 
and then walked away from it. And that was kind of his redemptive moment is that he, they, it didn't close on him standing there. It closed on him walking away. Yeah. Well, I think to that point, like if you look at the people he meets, you know, well, first he meets Colonel Kilgore, who's played by Robert Duvall, right? Who has that, you know, classic line of, oh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, you know, and he's out surfing, surfing on the waves, you know, and then the next group of people he meets are, are the group of people at um, a sort of really remote outpost. And then they get like the Playboy bunnies there, you know. And then the next group of people he meets are the ones, you know, like you mentioned with the grenade launcher and, and uh, you know, and, and, and even long. I mean, the first outpost he goes to, he says, oh, like, where's your CO? He says, oh, they were blown up by a landmine months ago. You know, and then the next one is even more, like you said, people disoriented, they're sort of mentally broken by the war. You know, he, you know, he, he says to one of them, he says, where's your CO? And the guy goes, isn't it you? Yeah. And, and literally like, you, they look like they don't even know where they are anymore. You know, it just, it's just a, a lot of little choices like that. Like to, I mean, and you get to that scene where you just show this disorder, but the thing is they're not, they're not wandering around aimlessly. They're, they're reacting violently aimlessly. You know, it's just, they just it's it's like a chicken with a, with its head cut off they just don't know what to, they're just you know they're there for violence they have the tools for violence and that and they they don't know what else to do and just this yeah this disorientation yeah where's your where's your co isn't it you and and then he just goes back to firing he didn't wait for an answer exactly it's like if kurtz is like the final form like the semi-final form of that is is when they get to when they get to kurtz's area and they have the guy who was sent there before Willard, who is called Colby, and they meet him, and he didn't say a word. He's just like blank. He's just you know, like he exists, but he's just there. You know what I mean? He's not. He's he's so broken. He's just nothing. You know, he's just nothing. From from what I read, you know, I, I didn't read a lot of analysis on it, but I I tried to read a bit. I didn't read any. So you're ahead of me on that. <laughs> I mean, one of the you know themes of the film. And I'm sure this is, yeah, I said, I've never read Heart of Darkness, so I don't know if it's similar in the book, but one of the themes of the film is, you know, it, so it says here, this is on Spark Notes. I'll just uh, read what they wrote. Um, it says, you know, madness as a result of war. Um, as they move upriver, Willard and the PBR crew become more agitated and separated from reality. It says, what originally is a mysterious, exciting voyage morphs into a descent into hell, and the characters respond by hardening themselves, withdrawing, and transforming. The cinematography reflects their impending madness by cloaking the journey in darkness and fog, creating an increasingly hallucinatory atmosphere. Yeah, it felt like a bad trip more and more. Yeah, <laughs> it really did. Yeah, like you said, I mean, as we said, it, it did that atmosphere very well. Um, I thought, you know, Martin Sheen for me was was fantastic. And it was nice for me because the last Martin Sheen film I watched was um, Wild at Heart, uh, which I wasn't a fan of. Wait, Wild at Heart. Hang on, Martin Sheen. Yeah, that was him. Who was it? Wild at Heart. I know. Sorry, wild at heart? sorry, not Wild at Heart. That was Nicholas Cage. Um, Badlands. I meant Badlands. Okay. Um, which was Martin Sheen. I, I had to do a double take. I was like, wait, <laughs> it's like Lawrence Fishburne. It's like, was he in fucking <laughs> Wild at Heart? <laughs> um, yeah. So the last time I saw Martin Sheen was Badlands, which is like, I guess a few years before. I think nineteen seventy-three, if my memory serves me correct. Good to see Martin Sheen in a film I enjoyed him in. Uh, Marlon Brando, of course, you know, was fantastic, even though he was only in it um, briefly. Um, I mean, I thought everyone on the boat was great. 
Uh, I mean, you know, I usually hate narration in films. I actually like the narration of this. I think it helped. I think it was like, you know, good to have that guide of like guiding us through the journey and like sharing these internal thoughts. And so the only other thing I'll touch on is, so the Redux version adds a couple of other scenes, one of which I felt was quite redundant, one of which I did like. So one of them was, so they meet these these Playboy Playmates, they put on this, you know, big show in the middle of the jungle, and they actually, so in the Redux version, they actually end up meeting them again later on, uh, which um, I didn't, I've, I thought it was just rather a redundant theme. Yeah, so that it didn't add much. And then another uh, scene that was added, which I thought was actually um, uh, good, they met this French family. Because obviously, you know, France was obviously in Vietnam and Cambodia and in the Indochina, as it was called then, um, before. So, so they, they meet this French family um, who's sort of a holdover from French Indochina. And they have this, this rubber plantation there. And, and you know, they're saying that... Um, we're not going to leave. It sort of talks about, you know, war and and their experience, you know, with, with war when, you know, the French were there in, in Indochina. And I, I felt that scene added to it. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I could have watched the original now and I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm, I really wish that scene was back in it. Like, but I mean, the fact it was in it, I was like, yeah, that was, you know, it was a good, it was a good scene. But yeah, I mean, I, I would have loved to be in the cinema in 1979 and like experience this because that would have been you know incredible like these this sort of film i mean i'm sure if i think about it there would there would be but this sort of film like didn't really exist then like this just uh visuals and sounds and everything just coming at you all at once like now to even to watch it now is an experience but i mean you know, watching it then, I can only imagine, you know, especially, you know, only a few years after the war had ended, I, I can't imagine what that would have been like to watch it. Find someone who knows. Yeah. So you get, you know, <laughs> someone, someone saw it in theaters, they're still alive. <laughs> that is our first film. Let's move on to your pick. Uh, another movie that is not a horror movie, but kind of is a horror movie. Um, so it's a 2012 film directed by Thomas Vinterberg. Starring uh, Mads Mikkelsen, uh, Tomas Bolarsen, Annika Verakop. It, it is The Hunt from 2012. Very brief synopsis. I'm just going to read the letterbox one because I think it does a good job. Um, a teacher lives a lonely life, all the while struggling over his son's custody because he's, you know, he's divorced. Uh, his life slowly gets better as soon as he finds love and receives good news from his son. But his new luck is about to be brutally shattered by an innocent little lie. So essentially, um, he is kind of down on his luck a little bit, and he ended up getting work at a local, I think it's a preschool. Uh, it's a kindergarten, yeah. It's a kindergarten, okay. Um, so he, he gets uh, work at this local kindergarten. He's a dad. He's good with kids. He likes working with kids. Perfectly innocent guy. And then one of the little girls there overhears separately, completely you know, separate from him. Uh, or from the school, she, you know, in her personal time, she overhears some sexual stuff. Well, actually, sorry, just to jump in. Is that? Oh, yeah, she was shown to her. Yeah, yeah, it was shown to her by her older brother. Yeah, her older brother was was messing with her and showed her like a, a like a porno mag or it was a penis or something, and then made a joke and then didn't and no one thought about anything about it. You know, the, even the bro- brother didn't think anything of it. He thought he was just being like a older brother and being funny. You know, and so she 
repeat she got mad at him for some because of some misplaced feelings okay and he was the responsible adult and he's like okay we don't do that and blah 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 and so in her childish anger not meaning anything by it she repeated uh basically the the thing that she, her she had heard from her older brother what it sounded like she was saying is that he had molested her which of course he did not the you know the real horror here is how quickly and easily all of the adults are like, oh, yep, he's raping kids. You know, they just immediately just assumed that the the kid saying that was all the proof they needed. She she tries to, to, to we were talking about, you know, comparing it to the children's hour earlier. And that, that kid was fucking evil in the children's hour from 61, I think it was. But in this movie, the little girl realizes pretty soon that this got taken out of context, that this blew up, that this, you know, she was just said a little lie and... She tries to come clean like 20 fucking times. Like, no, it didn't happen. I was just saying something. And all the adults are like, no, he raped you. You're just, you're traumatized. And so you're just saying, saying that. And then they coach their kids. Uh, you know, they don't realize they're doing it, but they're coaching their, all their other kids into thinking that they were raped. And, and this was actually uh, inspired by a true story. I think he um, was in Denmark or, or one of the low countries or in Scandinavia. I don't remember which country this actually happened, but, but one of the reviews actually talks about it. And I tried to find an article on it uh, last time I rewatched this, but I wasn't able to find much on it except for a few articles that said like, yes, it's based on a true story, blah, blah, blah. It was kind of a local thing. But one of the, the defining things in the actual event that, that, that was shared in this movie, and this is a dramatization of the actual events, of course. Uh, and one of the things they point out is that in the movie, it's a much shorter time span i think there was some legal stuff that got drawn out in real life where it took a much longer time to kind of get resolved um but one of the things was it, that happened in real life that they transported over this movie was that you know all the parents are like oh did he touch you and they're like oh yeah and then all the kids talk and then they, it becomes this sort of mass hysteria consistent story that all the kids are telling about him and one of the things is they're all describing this basement of his that that he would take them down to his basement and he would do things to them and you know that kind of thing really sick shit and and they kind of like it's a it's a it's a combination of mass hysteria and the the adults and you know asking leading questions like with assumptions on their mind and of course we find out that the guy doesn't have a basement and that was that was kind of the the crux of his defense that that proved he was innocent is they're all saying that he was raping them in his basement and he doesn't have a basement and yet but but this guy who you already feel pity for because he's he's had a kind of a bad run of things and he was just picking his, himself up and and things were starting to improve and then you know the entire village thinks he's a pedophile and he has, he has some allies and some people who believe him but it's very few and far between and it's just it's disturbing to see how little evidence the village really needed to believe in their hearts and act on it and abuse this man because they, they assumed that he would do this thing, even though it, it, it flew in the face of everything that they knew about him and his character. He, he, they all, everyone in the village knew him since he was a boy, you know, but it's just, he's a man. He works with kids and one girl said something. And even though she said she made it up, that's all they needed. And they, they, they all come together to conspire and just destroy this man's life. And so it's kind of it's kind of a horror movie. You know, there's a lot of men out there who say that they're afraid to work with kids because they hear horror stories like this. I've actually turned down uh, twice um, job offers to be a school nurse um, 
because the idea is a little scary to me. Like, you know, I'm comfortable around my kid, but but I see movies like this. And it makes me uncomfortable even around other people's kids because it scares me. What you know, someone just needs to say something that this movie is disturbingly realistic and it happened. You know, this is a dramatization, but this is based on true events. And um, and they didn't need they changed it for dramatic effect. They didn't add anything wild and crazy. You know, it's a scary movie in that sense and it's disturbing and it's sad and and the, the ending is uh i put this on my tragic endings list because there's something that's sort of tragic to me you know he, he's able to kind of come back a little bit at the end and most people seem to accept that he is actually innocent but you know th- then you get this reminder at the end there will always be a doubt uh, for the rest of his life. There will be people out there who still believe that he got away with molesting everyone's kids. You know what I mean? And, and also I read in an alternate ending, the, the guy who took a shot at him killed him. Yeah. But, but one thing that uh, I put in my review and, and I, I saw someone else did as well uh, in a different way, but here's the thing. You watch the movie and you're like, Oh my God, like people, you know, the, the whole sensationalization, the, the, you know, guilty until proven innocent. And, you know, this is, this is mass hysteria. And you're sitting there very comfortably from, from your couch or your chair or whatever, and you're passing judgment on these villagers. But in real life, who would you believe if a little girl said that her teacher, a grown man who is lonely and everyone kind of knows he's lonely. Um, if she said that he was molesting her, would you believe him when he said, no, that didn't happen? How many of the audience would actually, in that actual situation, feel the same as when they're watching the movie? And that's the disturbing part, because when I ask myself that question, I don't know. That's that's the most fucked up part, is, is you kind of have that self-reflection, and you may not like the answer you get when you ask yourself that question. I didn't like the answer I get. I'd like to be certain that I'd be like, oh no, there's due process and and let the police do their jobs and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in real life, if a little girl told me that that this this guy was her, you know, um, it, there's there's a gut reaction to want to protect a child and, and believe what the child is saying. And I think most people have that gut reaction. And um, that's the scariest part of this movie is that in real life, you might be one of the bad guys and not know it. And think you're doing the right thing. So, you know, other than that, um, as as a movie, I mean, it, it takes all those concepts and all, and all that uncertainty and anxiety and everything, and, and it packages it wonderfully into this film. It's it's a, a wonderful, fantastic film. It's beautiful, even though it's grim. You know, it's not a happy movie. Some of my favorite movies are not, though. Um, the acting was amazing. The guy who played the dad of the little girl, I forget his name. I found out if you read the IMDb profile, um, his his fake beard kept falling out because he was basically shit faced the entire movie. He was a raging alcoholic at the time of this movie was made. And he looks like it in the whole movie. It, it kind of like works for his role. It kind of helped him act the way he needed to. I think this this kind of like disheveled like uncertain kind of devastated person and then you read that he was able to pull off that role so fat so well because he was he was almost permanently blind drunk (laughs) the entire time on set and he kept like sweating out you know sweating off his uh his fake beard and everything but um 
the performance were performances were fantastic. Um, the child performances were especially good. This this kind of like you see this like fear and like uncertainty when they're speaking to adults about anything serious. And as soon as the, the adults start taking something seriously, the kids are like scared. They're scared. Like kids would be not, not about the particular subject matter necessarily, but just about like, you know, you're being confronted, you know, if, if you're a kid and I'm sure everyone remembers this, you're a kid. And then adult is like, starts taking what you're saying very seriously. And then it starts to freak you out that they are. And, 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 you know, the little girl did a really good job with that. Um, everything was very believable. Mads Mikkelsen. I don't think we even need to talk about, I mean, he's such a high bar of excellence and everything I've seen him and he's excellent. Uh, he was excellent in this. He pulled that perfectly, that kind of kicked down on the ground man, you know, who's just, who's just, he can't seem to get up, (laughs) you know? And, um, I think honestly, one of the most painful scenes was when he tried to buy groceries. That was, that was crushing. You know, when, when he had, he tried to walk back in with dignity to get his groceries and just the way he was treated was, um, it's just a man trying to save what dignity he has left, um, you know, in, in the face of a crime he didn't commit. What did you think? Yeah, look, I thought it was a great film. I gave it four stars. Um, I do want to give a bit of context, uh, before I get into what I think. So just to expand upon what you said, so. Um, so the, so Mads Mikkelsen plays this guy called Lucas and the little girl is called Clara and Clara has a tendency to, when her parents argue, which is often, she sort of just wanders off and, and Lucas, you know, finds her, you know, walks home or whatever else. And, and he has a dog and she's like, Oh, can I come over and walk your dog? And he's like, yes, of course. So she develops, you know, she's kindergarten, right? So like five years old. She, so she develops some like five year old crush on him, right? Which is not an unusual thing. No, exactly. And because of that, kisses him on the lips and makes this heart thing for him, right? And he says, like you said, you know, he says, oh, that's inappropriate. You know, kissing is only for mum and dad, whatever. And then you add into that, her, her her older brother and his friend showed her this pornographic magazine. And then she says, oh, and then she conflates everything, you know, because it it, it stems from he said to her, this is inappropriate. But because she's five years old, she doesn't get that. Hence, the accusation comes about. And then to add to the ending of, of what you said, so at the end, uh, his his son, I guess it's a thing in Denmark, um, they turn 16 and they get like this hunting license. Um, so they go hunting and, uh, and as Lucas is sort of on his own, uh, someone shoots at him. They don't shoot him, but they shoot at him. And we don't see who it is. We just see this figure. We don't see who it is, and then they run away. And so the audience is left to think, hmm, who is that? I mean, I actually saw something like that coming. I actually thought he was going to get shot earlier. Um, and, and then when he was when he was there, I thought, okay, he's going to get shot. I mean, he, he didn't, in, you know, in a normal ending, he gets shot at. Um, but I did, but it was still effective because I was like, well, you know, wow. I mean, I, I saw it coming. I knew I knew he was going to get shot at or shot. I actually, said, I actually thought he was going to get shot and die. Um but it was still, I was still like, wow. Because like you said, like, it's still, there's always something lingering, right? You see everyone to the end, all shaking hands with him and hugging him and he's back in the community. But it's like 90%. He's never going to be 100% vindicated in some people's minds. And whenever shown who shot at him, I think it was probably the father um, is, is the most obvious guess. No, I feel like the father was the one who came around, um, who, who, who most genuinely and first came around. 
because he brought that food. He kind of hit, you could tell he has this realization, the dad, Clara's dad, where he, it's after the scene in, uh, at Christmas, you know, in the church. And you could tell like he, he has this, this seed of doubt that finally settled into like the pit of his stomach. And then he's, he's wrestling with it. And then he goes and sits with his daughter. And for like the 20th time, she's like, Hey, I said something stupid. He didn't do anything wrong and I'm sorry. And I, you know, I want to come clean, but everyone will hate me and all that stuff. And, and it's like, it's not the first time she said it, but it's the first time an adult was willing to listen to that. And he had to have that seed of doubt in him to, to be able to finally realize that she's telling him she lied. And, and he's, it's finally ready to hear that. And then he feels bad and he takes over that food to Mads Mickelson's house and, and kind of sits down with him. He's like, I'm not here to kill you. And, and, and they just have this because they've known each other so long. They just have this kind of moment. And then it transitions to like, Oh, it's like 10 months later and he's, he's everyone believes him except for some fringe element, you know, in the community who still thinks he did it. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, apart from the obvious of why it would be the father, when when it goes, you know, flashes to one year later, and then you see him pull up in the car park, and he's greeting all these people. The father isn't there. We don't see him greet the father, and 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 so that's why I was like, hmm. I don't know. I feel like they set it up so concretely that the father realized he didn't do it. I feel like it was someone else. Um, I'm going to disagree with you on there, but but since they don't show it, I guess well, neither of us will really be proven correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it was just some member of the community that couldn't let go of their opinion of the guy after that whole thing. Yeah, I don't know the actual thing it was based off. I do know, because I've read about this before, that in the 80s and 90s, um, mostly in America, but also you know around the world, there was uh, this thing called daycare sex abuse hysteria featured charges against daycare providers accused of committing several forms of child abuse, including satanic ritual abuse, you know, and all these, these places around the world were accused of sexually abusing children. And it was a similar thing of, you know, all these children started to come out and say, Oh, well, they're being, you know, they took me to this basement or they took me to, you know, this location. And it was all this fantastical, you know, made up things. I mean, but I mean, like you said, I mean, you know, it, it is reminiscent of the children's hour, how this one little lie can ruin people's lives. Now, it's mentioned in the children's hour. I don't want to go too much into it because I don't want to spoil it. You can go and listen to uh, episode 16 um, where Christian and I discussed it. Um, you can go and listen to that. Um, but that is a, is, is a similar thing, right? I mean, that, that one is much more, the girl in that one knows exactly what she's doing. She is evil, spawn of Satan. Like, she knows what she's doing, whereas this one is obviously a childish innocent mistake right i mean the little girl in the children's hour knows exactly what she's doing um but i I think you know they're both really good illustrations of someone just has to say something and your life is over especially if it involves kids i mean i mean i I, i've even read stuff you know anecdotally where you know guys for example they they could be there with their kids for instance right you know but guys will be you know um at the park for instance with their children and the child will be on the swings and they'll fall over. And they'll go to help them up. And the, and the mother will come running up. Why, why are you touching my child? And it's like, I'm helping they fell off the swing. Like, what are you talking about? Or, or like, you know, a, a child comes up to them and talks to them because children are curious creatures, right? And then someone comes rushing over. Why are you talking to my child? You know, and so it's a thing of where, and now 
I mean, and I'm sure this has been happening for years, but now it feels like you said we're in a climate where if men, you know, talk to children or do anything, it's like pedophile. And it's, it's you know, and I, I, I know people the same who want to, you know, I, I had a friend who wanted to work as a teacher, but he was like, I don't know if I can because, you know, it's a dangerous territory um, for a guy to get into. I mean, it's it's a, this is a timely movie for us to watch because we're sort of seeing this in a different angle play out, or we've just seen it play out in real time with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, right? That was a situation where she accused him of domestic abuse um, and everybody took her side because she's a woman. And then it was found out, actually, no, she was the abuser and she was admitting to it on tape and laughing about it. Um, But, you know, because there was this culture of believe all women, he was instantly vilified. His career has pretty much been ruined. And I'm not saying Johnny Depp is perfect. I mean, you know, it's 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 well, uh, you know, acknowledged. He's had his problems over the years with different things. Um, but, you know, he has essentially had his career and his image and his reputation ruined because of his lies. And they've been saying in a film, oh, children, children don't lie. Children won't lie about this sort of thing. And it's like, no, children do lie. Women do lie. Men do lie. Everyone lies. Like we, like we need, we as a society need to stop having these like preconceived things of, you know, X group of people can't do this. Yeah, that's not going to go away though. And it, this is this is something that that I have to deal with in my profession. And I and I actually had a conversation with a, a nurse that I trained um, at work today. I was I was we were both working this weekend, and she called me and she said, "Hey, I just uh, readmitted this patient that we've seen before." And she lives in this one subdivision and she really, really, really wants you to be her case manager. And I was like, let me guess, was it blah, blah? And she goes, oh my God. Yeah. You remember her? I was like, yeah, um, she's tried to, she's been readmitted like three times since I had her as a patient and she has uh, requested every time to have me back. But I gave her up when she was my patient to another nurse, a female nurse, because she started making borderline sexual advances at me. And as soon as, and she'd been, she'd said stuff like kind of borderline, but not overt before. And it made me uncomfortable. But then one day she really started like saying stuff about like how tall I am, how handsome I am. And then it got like sexual and weird. And I was just like, you know, most of my visit in my head, I'm like, I'm writing stuff down in my head. I'm like, well, this is the last time I ever come here, you know? And as soon as I left and this, I've had to do this at the hospital too. I immediately document literally everything they said and everything that I said. And then I call my supervisor and say, this is exactly what happened. First of all, no men should be able to go to this house anymore. You cannot have any male providers go to this house because, because I'm alone with that person. And they can say that I said or did whatever they want. And it's their opinion against mine. And they have nothing to lose. I have my license to lose, you know, as a provider. And um, I have had to do that at the hospital. Um, many times I, you know, I would go into a room and, uh, a woman would say some sick shit to me, uh, or ask me to do things. And then I would just make a beeline out of that door, go right to the nurse's station, to the charge nurse and be like, Hey, um, men are not allowed to go in that room anymore because it is, that is a lawsuit room. You know, they just need to say whatever they want. And then they can sue the hospital for all kinds of money. And then your name gets dragged through the dirt. And it's the only thing protecting you, the only thing protecting you. There's no security cameras in patient rooms. You know, you can't do that. There's no, 
you can't you can't record what you do at work. That's a HIPAA violation. You know, they have to, you, you know, you're unsafe in some ways because of your obligation to protect the patient. And um, and so the only thing protecting me in all those situations is that I immediately left and I wrote down in the official chart exactly everything that they said to me. And and it's and if you don't write it down quick enough, you know, it can look like you waited and kind of coached yourself or tried to frame it in a way or you know, whatever. It's you have to be really careful with that shit. And that's just in my profession. And I don't work with kids, you know. <laughs> it's it's scary. Um it's scary how powerful a lie can become and how widespread it can become and how ready if you're especially if you're a man, and you know, women have problems also with the same concept, but in different ways, you know, like, you know, I'm a man, so I'll speak as a man. Most people I feel are very prepared to believe that you're capable of certain things because you're a man. That makes the, the prospect of certain types of work scary. Um, being alone with someone can be scary because they can say you, you know, when I, in the hospital, especially we, we had you know, techs like CNAs, uh, like nursing assistants, and many of them were female. Most of them were female. They're similar, similar nurses. Like most of them are female. Some of them are guys. If I had to do any procedure that involved or exposed in any way a female patient's genitals, like, uh, and there's a lot of things you could do, you know, dressing changes or uh, inserting Foley catheters or whatever. I, and I always told this to new nurses who are guys too. Like, always, always, always have a female work coworker with you. Bring them into the room and, you know, have them, even if you have good lighting, have them hold the flashlight. Just say, hey, they're my assistant. I'm going to have, I need them to hold the flashlight or whatever. You can say whatever excuse you want. You can say you're, you know, you're claustrophobic and you need like a comfort person. It doesn't matter what you say. You need to have a female witness on the same payroll as you in case they say something. Always 100% of the time. And if they say, I only want you in the room, that's a red flag. I don't fucking go, I don't touch that patient, <laughs> you know? And and it's it's that same, I hope I didn't go on too much of a tangent, but it's that same concept. It's because because what happened to him in this movie can happen to me very easily unless I take some, some very elaborate steps to protect myself. And I am just a nurse who works with adults. I can't even imagine being a 6'4 male, like with a beard working at a kindergarten Um, that would scare me to death because one of those kids just has to say one thing that to them sounds innocent. And then just one parent has to take it the wrong way or assume something or whatever. And that could easily happen to me easily. What can happen to all of us? You know, it's like, it's, it's the same, you know, I've heard it in dating, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, people, they don't want to say the wrong thing because what if they get accused of this or they don't want to, you know, when they meet up, they don't want to, you know, go to a certain place because what if such and such is said afterwards? It's, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't, who who won't like to hear that being a man has its own challenges, you know, because there's certain people who will say, no, women have it hardest. And it's like, this isn't a competition. Like you can acknowledge women have problems in society just like men have problems in society. You know, one is not out compete the other one is not more important than the other i mean i do notice that it's more prevalent in my work um there's a lot of sexual assault against medical providers i have been sexual assaulted i have not pressed charges against anyone because it was always minor but i have technically been sexually assaulted uh quite a few times 
Um, but it happens to women more often and I've seen it happens to women more often, uh, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter when it happens to guys. Um, that's kind of where I feel like people, uh, lose perspective. Um, we can admit that it does happen to one group more than the other. It's still not okay that it happens to anyone. Um, and it's really, I think that's the responsibility of that, that work environment or the employer or to, to set boundaries for that environment to say that, you know, you're not allowed to do these things to our employees, uh, and, and we press charges and, and we come down on it very harshly and we don't just slap you on the wrist and say, stop it, which a lot of places do a lot of hospitals that just say, um, well, you know, what did you do to maybe encourage them to do that? And it's pretty fucked up. A lot of hospitals care more about the customer service um, part of the hospital environment than protecting their workers. Um, and I've experienced that. I've seen a lot of women experience that. It's it's awful. Um, but again, that's that's just my experience. And, and maybe that's why this film is a horror movie for me, because this is kind of like the worst case scenario of situations I've been in similarly similar situations i've been in yeah it's it's a very real fear for me and and i i feel it was very well presented in this film um and, and that scares me yeah i mean all i'd say to finish it off is you know what you said mads mokson was great he was a standout for me no not that i thought anybody was you know had bad acting performance in it but he was clearly the uh the best in my opinion and yeah four stars great film um scary even though it doesn't tend to be but <laughs> i think i gave it a four and a half it's outstanding incredible movie uh i i think it honestly is i feel like everyone should watch it because it, it's an important human lesson about how we perceive things you know we we base our laws around you know innocence until proven guilty but then you know when there's a sensational case um that's not how it is you know it's trial by by media and um, this was kind of a similar thing. And, and it's just, it's a very real thing that happens all the time. On that somewhat somber note, shall we move into a uh, more positive territory uh, with our final film? Is it? Is it more positive? This final film? This is kind of a horror movie too, if you think about it, in a certain angle. I feel like our thoughts on it might be more, more you know, happy and glowing rather than a bit more meditative and... Uh pessimistic <laughs> it starts off happy and glowing to reel you into the sick to the to the the darkness towards the end you know to really gets your hooks in you and you feel like it's going to be a feel-good movie and then it dashes you against the rocks it's like no it's not it's a great tragedy <laughs> anyway go ahead uh so this was george's pick um from 1957 no surprise there uh directed by uh elia kazan uh, who George and I also talked about another one of his films um, a few episodes back because he directed uh, East of Eden with John uh, with James Dean in. Uh, so this one, yeah, Facing the Crowd uh, stars Andy Griffith and uh, actually his film debut, which I didn't know, which that probably has to be up there for me, like one of the best debuts ever um, because he was so damn good. Um, Patricia Neal uh, and then Anthony Francioska and Walter Matteo sort of the two other main characters. So uh, Patricia Neal plays someone called Marsha Jeffries, who is this um, radio journalist. Um, and she goes to record uh, one of her, you know, her segments in, in prison uh, where she meets a drunken drifter called Larry Rhodes, who's given the name Lonesome Rhodes. And he, you know, he sort of 
play some songs and make some jokes and, uh, you know, says some observations about life. And he's deemed so charming that uh, he gets his own radio program. And so he sort of moves up the ranks. Uh, then he gets his own TV show. And then he's taken to New York to, to be on a bigger TV show. His ego just gets bigger and bigger and bigger along the way because he's he's gone from this, you know, drifter in jail uh, for being drunk and disorderly to now he has this, you know, New York TV show and he's got all these sponsors and he's a political kingmaker. Yeah, and and he, he goes into politics. Road to getting a new newly formed cabinet post in the government. <laughs> Holy shit! Uh, so him and uh, uh, Marsha sort of have a thing going on. It's revealed that he's actually, so he, he asks Marsha to marry him. It's revealed he's actually already married. And, and he says to Marsha, he says, okay, well, I, you know, we were married in Mexico, uh, you know, him him and his ex-wife. And so I'm going to go to Mexico and I'm going to get the judge to, you know, you know, divorce it so, so I can marry you. Well, he comes back from Mexico, not with a divorce, or he might have done, who knows. But he, he also came back with uh, a wife, 17-year-old wife, who was a drum majorette, which sort of, you know, breaks... Marsha, because she expected him, you know, she was there waiting at the airport, and and uh, he comes back with a new wife instead. So she's obviously, you know, quite upset about this. Um, he actually ends up dumping the wife anyway, because she ends up having an affair with Joey De Palma, who is his sort of like business manager, I guess. So Marsha decides. So it's it, Lonesome Rose is when he's on TV. Uh, you know, when he was on the radio before that, he was a very charming individual and he says all the right things to all the right people and everyone, you know, around the country loves him. Um, but when he's not on TV and when he's not on the microphone, he speaks very disparagingly of the audience and, and says, you know, oh, they're all just sheep. You know, they'll do whatever I told them to. They're so dumb. I have them in the palm of my hand, etc., etc. Um, So as he's saying this, uh, one time after the TV show ends, Marsha uh, puts the audio back on so everyone in the country can hear what he actually thinks of the people and that sort of you know destroys his career as such Marsha and her i don't know if they're married but this this guy she's with called mel uh, who was originally a writer um for lonesome uh they they go over to to see lonesome because he says he's gonna he's gonna kill himself if he don't come over and and they go over and he's giving so he was he got involved with politics and he was sort of like uh, you know, managing this guy called Curly Fuller. Um, and, you know, like like you mentioned, he, you know, he was promised his cabinet post. I forget what the actual title was. It was something like, you know, Secretary for Morale or some, you know, some stupid title. Yeah, it was like Secretary for Mor- for National Morale yeah. or something, um, which did sound so stupid to me. But I was like, <laughs> I'll let it go because I know where this is going. <laughs> and so they go over to the apartment and and uh, he's there in this apartment, you know, giving this grandiose speech to this en- empty room. And his one of his friends is turning like the applause machine on and off, you know. So it's like he's. Oh, that was cinema. That was cinema, <laughs> man. That was so good. I was like, they're using the applause machine. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I love that scene. You know, Marsha says it was me. You know, I, I was the one who put, you know, the, the microphone on. And, and I was one of you in your career and Mel. As they're leaving, Mel says to to Lonesome, he says, you know, you'll get work again, but you'll you'll never be as popular as you were, you know, and, and you're gonna have to live with that. Mel and Marsha drive away as uh, as Lonesome screams out from the top of a, the penthouse, you know, come back, come back. So that is a film. That is a film. <laughs> <laughs> 
I thought it was uh, amazing and gave it five stars, um, as I do for a lot of films of that era. Um, I think the 50s is probably my favourite my favorite film era, just in terms of how many films from that decade I love. It's, be- it's becoming mine. Yeah. Damn. You know, George is working his influence on us. Yeah, he, he is kind of, he's like a virus of good taste. It's, it's <laughs> infecting us all. So what did, uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was an easy five-star film. Um for so many reasons. Um, first of all, it did this not predict trends today or what? I mean, holy shit. You know, the network kind of did this a little bit. Didn't did I make you watch the network? Did, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. We 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 watched it. We, we we reviewed it. Yes, that's right. That's right. We did at one of the early episodes. And and that kind of did this a little bit to kind of the same extent. I feel like they both did this similarly but differently, but both very well where they talk about kind of the effect that mass media would have on these old world, these legacy institutions, like, like, uh, you know, uh, politics or, you know, corporations or, uh, you know, influence, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, public opinion, really public opinion. Um, Network ran into things like how you, you know, people don't read books anymore. Like everything, you know, comes out of the TV, everything, you know. And, and this is this is like an earlier kind of version or argument of that. And, and I feel like, you know, television as a technology was new enough that I, this movie kind of, kind of gets more points for it because this one had to see further into the future to to make that claim. Yeah. So it's, it's creepy how accurate it is that um, just how manipulative mass media is. And it's something that that people are I, over the last ten years, especially with some of the elections we've had over here. I mean, people have been talking about it for decades, but I feel like it's with the internet and with Twitter, especially, that it's more of an open conversation now. And now you have you know documentaries that are coming out about like Facebook algorithms and 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 how it's it's literally changing society, um, and that it it could be engineered in a way that could potentially, you know, uh, highlight some of our better qualities and make things better, but it's not because of, of money and advertising. And it's, it's geared instead towards some of our lesser natures and, and exploiting and, and highlighting and bringing out more and more and more of that. And so you, it's, it's more of an open conversation right now. Um, whether or not that's ever going to make a difference, I don't know. But but th- like I said, this this movie saw further into the future than Network could because it's it's like almost twenty years earlier. But yeah, th- just this not only that, but you know the the character of Mel is the one who's who's really kind of the the voice of um, reason in this movie, and I loved his character. That's like who I wish I were. You know that that self assured like education and and the ability to apply it without coming off as arrogant, but just 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 kind of seeing the bigger picture and the patterns and, and calling it before everyone else. And, and he talks about the, it's even the title of his book. Um, something, something about demagoguery. Yeah. It, it's something like the demagogue in denim or something. Yes. Yes. The demagogue in denim. Yeah. It's this grassroots demagoguery. It really is. It, it's, you know, he's, he's the man of the people. I'm one of you. And, and he appeals to the greater populace. And and then you get these these competing elements, which are, again, part of these kind of like the way things were, you know, um, that that guy who who describes himself as his adoptive father, 
um, who's who's trying to he's trying to be the king. That's what the kingmaker used to be: the backroom, cigar smoking, um, running only in certain circles that matter, kind of kingmaker. And now he's he's being overshadowed and overtaken uh, effortlessly by the new type of kingmaker. The person who makes who makes or breaks people based on um, how many people he can convince with 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 cameras um, to turn against um, or support someone. And you make a deal and all of a sudden he can make the public love you. He can raise your ratings, blah, blah, blah. And it's this it's this just cynicism that this character is infected with. And and even even aside from all the, the messaging, which is wonderful in this film, it's hard to pull off some of this stuff without coming across as um, edgy, you know, um, but, but to do it well in this movie, I think did it very, very well. Some of the best, but, but then you have this side thing too, or maybe it's not even a side thing. Maybe it's the main thing where you get to watch this character go from nothing to nothing in a different sense, you know, where he, he had his, his honesty and his genuineness at least, but then as he, as he, I don't think he was even the wealth, honestly, it, it never felt like it for him. It just, it was the attention and the, the love and the adoration and, and his ego just was inflated. And, um, to see him be unable, completely unable functionally to go back to the person that he was, where this was, this so thoroughly changed him. And this really brought out the worst parts of him. Yeah, that it was it was hard to watch and and I think they the way they ended it was fantastic. They didn't need to do the melodramatic sort of red shoes thing where he jumps in front of a train, he didn't have to jump off the balcony. It, they got the message across much more in a much more sobering fashion by just have him screaming at the top of his lungs over the ending credits. Just just still sc- screaming. You know, come back, come back and then it's there's no music. It's just the end. And he's gone, come back to me, you know, and then the movie just ends and you're like, fuck that. It, it really ropes you in, you know, with this, this upbeat sort of uh, this hillbilly guy who's in the infectiously charming and, and, uh, oh, you know, isn't he, isn't he crazy? You know, is, isn't he just, uh, you know, outrageous the way he doesn't give, get these social conventions and, and all this stuff. And he doesn't know what he's doing is inappropriate. And it, it's just the salt of the earth, you know, and, and then it turns into this much darker picture. I mean, they ruin his character for this movie. They ruined this person. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's a dra- dramatized version of just the absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, and, it, and it's kind of a fun ride to get there. But when you get to that final stop at the train station, you're like, Oh shit. Um, this, this, this went, this went downhill, man. This got dark. Um, this, this person is, is a ruined human being. So before I get into that, cause I do want to, I mean, it's a very deep podcast. This is a very deep episode. We're discussing a lot of, you know, important themes and topics. <laughs> I, I think, yeah. And, and maybe I'm taking it too far. And if I am, I, I apologize to you and anyone listening. I mean, I, I want to get on talking about, the themes because that it, it very much interests me um but before i do that um uh, quick a uh, few quick compliments yeah so i think andy griffiths i mean i didn't I'd, I'd heard the name andy griffith because i'd heard of the andy griffith show i've never watched it it was long before my time i i have i watched it when i was a kid and that's why i was like oh my god that's andy griffith and then the and then i get to the end of the movie i'm like i didn't know andy griffith had these kind of roles. Yeah, well, this was his oh first God. ever role. I said I'd never seen yeah. anything before. He He's was... not whistling enough. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was outstanding to me. I mean, 
He just incredible. He yeah. just oozed charisma. I mean, every scene he was in, he just commanded the screen. Um, and then he oozed disaster just as effectively towards yes. the end of the movie. Uh, I mean, he was he was just this broken shell, you know, just a broken record spinning over and over and over and unable to change the track. I, I mean, he he just pulled it off so marvelously. Yeah. I mean, Patricia Neal was 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 really good as well. But I mean, Andy Griffith was you know, like incredible to me. And yeah, he stole the show. I liked Mel a lot, too, but he didn't have to go to the kind of, you know, heights and depths with, with the acting. Uh, Andy Griffith is incredible. Yeah. I mean, the writing, you know, as you'd expect from a 50s film was incredible. The cinematography was incredible. You know, I actually liked the, like, twists and turns. Like, you know, first we had the first secret wife, and I was like, oh, shit, what's going to happen here? And then we had the second secret, the second wife, right? And, and I was like, damn, I didn't see any of this coming. And then we had, you know, Marsha exposing him, and she's holding, you know, she's getting it all on mic, and it's going out to the country, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know. So it, it, it wasn't... It, it wasn't like a thriller in that sense of twists and turns, but the twists that were in there, I felt like like the the story was intriguing enough. It didn't need to do those things, but the fact it did made it that much better. So talk a bit about you know the themes of the film. I've always been absolutely fascinated by power, um, and I, I don't know if you've have you heard of a thing called Toastmasters? I don't know if they have it. Uh, that sounds extremely familiar. That's that's like a speech. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do people give speeches? Yes, exactly. Okay, so, I vaguely know of this. Vaguely, very vaguely. Yeah, so I in my old job, I was part of a Toastmaster club and I gave, you know, a few speeches. And one of them was on I wish I still had it. I should see if I have it somewhere. I wish I'd got a copy of it. But it was titled something like, you know, what humans really want. And I and I my I said that my opinion was humans want three things in life. They want love, they want belonging, and they want power. These are sort of the three things that drives people, you know, through life and, and, you know, every decision. And, you know, power is interesting to me because what what I said in this presentation, from what I can remember of it, is, you know, there's there's people who want power for power's sake, right? They want it because they, they want to be powerful and they want to respect them and they want to, you know, lord it over other people and have control over people, etc. It's intoxicating. It is a ton of the idea of it is intoxicating. Exactly, you, know, you need and, to have it. You just need to imagine it, and you're like, "Oh yeah, it feels so good." Yeah, and, and there's people who want it. You know, they say, "Oh well, I want you know, I want to be in a powerful position so I can change the world and do good." But most people still want power, right? They might they just want it for a different way. So, I I'm of a belief, and maybe this is um, uh, a very pessimistic way to view humans, but I think we all want power in some sense, whether we realize it or not. No matter what we want it for. We all want it. I don't think anybody would turn it down if offered, if it was offered to them. Um, but I think, like you said, power corrupts, and that's that's what I've always been so interested in with this concept of power. Is you take someone who, you know, he alone some roads was, um, you know, he wasn't a bad guy. I'd say when he started the film, he was a bit of a you know character. He was a drifter, you know, but he he wasn't someone who you would say was a bad guy. But he got that taste of power, and once you get that taste, that's it. You're hooked, you're intoxicated, you never want to let it go, and you just want more and more and more, and it's never enough because power is so intoxicating. And this movie, to me, was the perfect illustration of that. He just couldn't get enough power. He just wanted more and more. Even when they lose it, it, it it's not good enough for to be like, oh, well, you know, that's it. My career's over. I'll go to something else. He's like, no, I'm going to come back, you know, give it a year or something. Everyone will have forgotten about all this. I'll be back on top again. I'll be back on TV. Like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand, like, no, it's it's finished. Because he can't understand it's finished. Because to him, 
he can't lose power. He's, he's he's on top of the world. How could he ever lose power? He can't live if he doesn't have power, you know? And that's why that ending was so, like, perfectly pathetic because he's in this room by himself and he's got a fucking applause machine. This is how 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 sad it is and he's, he's so deluded and his ego is so huge. He knows... He's pushing the dopamine button over yeah, and over and over. He knows in his heart... Over. He's it's over. He's not. He's, he's not going to get this cabinet post. He's not going to be on TV. But he's there and he's shouting this speech. And his friend Beanie's, you know, on the applause machine all the time. And and it, it's so, you know, he's so deluded about his station in life that that he's doing this. And it reminded me of um, something like Sunset Boulevard, where she's so deluded. She's thinking, oh, all these cameras are here for me, and they're here to film my pictures. Like, no, they're here because you just fucking killed someone. You know, but like they're so deluded by that point. I mean, I, I think he's more self-aware in that sense. I don't think he's he's you know crazy like like yeah, like she's like mentally broken. He he's just like yeah, uh, was very distressed. Yeah, he's he's he's, he's deluding himself. Right, you know, I I love the film for that, for what it showed and for what it represented, and for how it it just illustrated how power corrupts people, even you know lovable characters like lonesome modes you know um and i I think it did that incredibly effectively and i think a large part of that was i mean obviously it's it's you know the direction of elia kazan and and the the um uh screenplay by uh bod schulberg who um based it off a short story he wrote um but i think a lot of that too was the performance of andy griffith who um i don't want to say carried this film um but he he was like the star of a show, literally, figuratively. Um, and I said, to, for him, I didn't, before I just read it now on Wikipedia, I didn't know this was in his film debut. This would probably be up there, I would say, in my opinion, like top five best debuts ever. Like, to to give a performance like this that is that authentic and just like gripping, like you're just glued to the screen because you want to watch this guy, like incredible. If I, wa- I if I watch it again, I feel like it could potentially enter my top ten list. I really, really enjoyed my time because it was never boring either. You know, even if you don't if you don't want to read that, you don't want to go that far into the deep end of the pool. Um, it's it's an engaging film from start to finish, and and part of that is his personality. I mean, he's like exhausting to watch, um, especially in the beginning. But but he's also like it's it's fascinating to see his meteoric rise to power and and to you're constantly thinking back to how he was at the beginning of your film and you're like it's the same person but it's not it's something there's a perversion uh, of of his like values and his character now you know and and it's like he's taking his this personality used to be genuine and now he it's now it's a, a mask like his former personality is now a mask that he uses to manipulate people and it, it's like this um you know, it's like every person has like the little guy inside pulling the switches and it's like they replace it with a different guy. Um, that's a weird metaphor, but I, I, I don't know how to describe it. And that's that's I don't know. It, it's just this this perversion of his character and how he was he was just kind of seduced into changing uh, five out of five for me. Uh, review pending. George. Uh, he, God damn, man. He, the man has some good taste and he's really good at getting people into this era of films. He, he knows which ones are good, man. Kudos to you, George. Keep picking good films. Yeah, kudos to George.
He's the hero of the podcast right now, I think. Well, I think that wraps up episode 27. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you would give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we'll see you next week.